They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 4 Occam's Razor I wanted to use this podcast to pull together some ideas about what we know about the case. Have any of you ever come across a term called Occam's Razor? Occam's Razor is an old philosophical approach that believes that the simplest explanation has a higher probability of being true than one that is founded on lots and lots of assumptions. It's always stood me in good stead in the past, so I'm going to try and use that approach to come up with the simplest explanation I can for five key questions. When, how, who, why, and where. Now, it's almost certainly not going to be correct at this stage in all of those five areas, but what it does do, it gives us a start point, a kind of framework, a working hypothesis, which as new pieces of information arise, we can amend and hopefully edge closer and closer to the truth. Now, I'm joined in this by Andy Huff, who we met in episode three. He's the retired head of serious crimes for East Midlands. We try and discuss all the possibilities and try and narrow them down using that framework. Firstly, I want to talk about when. Now, this is probably the thing we can work with with most certainty. We know that the ring was produced between July 1967 and July 1968. So that gives us the very earliest date the body could be buried. But we know more than that because according to the manufacturer, that ring wasn't sold into the retail trade until 1969. That would require then for that retailer to sell that ring to a customer, Fred, and then Fred to wear that ring for a while. So that brings us to an earliest possible estimation of when Fred could have been killed to spring 1969. Now let's work back the other way. We know exactly the date that Fred was found. It was Friday, March the 26th, 1971. We know from what the autopsy revealed that he'd been in the ground somewhere between nine months and 18 months. Let's take 12 months as a pretty good guide on that. That takes us back to spring 1970. So suddenly the window of time when this happened is quite narrow. It's from spring 1969 to spring 1970. Whoever Fred is, is likely to have been killed and disappeared within that 12 month period. But I think we can go even further. One of the things that's been intriguing me about this case is why didn't David Nathan 
discover the body at the time of its burial. He was going there really regularly. He should have noticed something. But I was listening back to episode two the other day and I noticed something. And I wonder if you noticed it as well. I asked him, what was the weather like on that day? And he said, well, let me play you what he said. Just by the way, just weather conditions. Any idea what it was like on the on the evening itself? Fine. Wasn't raining out, so I wouldn't have gone across because I'd have got the shotgun wet. Now, I know the sound quality is not fantastic on that, so let me just repeat what he said. When I asked him what were the weather conditions like, he said, fine. It wasn't raining. It wouldn't have gone over. I would have got the shotgun wet. Now, that got me thinking. I'd always assumed that David Nathan went every day for years and this was a thing I couldn't work out because if a burial had taken place he would have seen it. It would take weeks for it to settle in such a form that a person who walked across it wouldn't notice it. But what if there was a period of time when David Nathan didn't go shooting? And we know from what he's just said he never went shooting in the rain. I got a bit of a lucky break on this. I went back to the Met Office data for rainfall for 1969 and 1970, the period we're now interested in. Now Burton itself doesn't have a weather station but there is a weather station at a place called Sutton Bonington which is about 15 miles away from Burton on the other side of East Midlands Airport. It's very similar weather conditions to what we have around here. And I looked at the rainfall for every month in 1969 and 1970. I wanted to get an idea if there were any particular periods when it was raining all the time. The average rainfall for a month across those two years, 69 to 70, was 52.5 millimetres. That's the average and it's remarkably consistent across seasons. Just to give other context in that, the month that David Nathan found the body March 1971, the amount of rainfall in that month was 38.8, so a relatively dry month. But having looked through all of those months, they're very consistent, 58, 55, 55.8, 48.6, until you reach May 1969, 147.1 millimeters. May 1969, it rained, and rained and rained. David Nathan would not have been shooting in May 1969. June 69 back to 27.2. But then July and August, high rainfall again. 85.3, 101 in August, twice the average. After that though, really low levels of rainfall, 16.3, 8.4. And in fact, in 1970, really consistent all the way through and low rainfall. 51 in January, 48 in February, 45 in March, 54 in April, 29 in May, 1970. So of the 24 months of those two years, there were only three months where rainfall was significantly higher than average. May, 1969, July, 1969 and August, 1969. From what David Nathan says, he would not have been shooting very much in those three months. 
May, July and August 1969 really are the only times a body could have been buried and David Nathan didn't notice it. If you're getting as intrigued as I am about this case, good, I need your help. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered to your phone, tablet or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify or Podbean. Now, back to the story. I mentioned earlier that I'm joined on this podcast by Andy Huff. He's seen a lot more murder investigations than I have. So, I started off by asking him whether my rainfall theory had any merit whatsoever. No, I mean, listening to the work you've done, uh, and we know that pathology says 18 months to nine months, um, we know Nathan, he would usually be on that uh, piece of land except when it was raining and, and you now have identified a period of three months where there was excessive rain which would deal with the issue as to why David hadn't previously seen any disturbed earth. The other, the other question is what else might have been happening in and around the recreation ground and, and the land where the body was buried between those months of May, June, July, August. Was there an event that might attract people from outside of the Burton East Midlands area and even further afield? That, that's interesting. Well, I think it was used for, for, for things. I think there's something called the Bass Field Day was something that happened every year around that kind of time, which was a kind of fairground thing. So, uh, well, that's interesting because, yeah, that might, uh, that might fit in with it as well. So, okay, so if we've, if we've kind of narrowed, slightly at least, kind of narrowed a focus down on, on the when, if we, if we think about the, the how question, by the how question, I mean, how did he meet his demise? Now, the, the intriguing thing is when he was recovered and, and when the autopsy was performed, there were no obvious wounds. Now, that doesn't necessarily, of course, mean that he wasn't killed. Are there ways where people can be killed, which after nine to 18 months wouldn't obviously show in an autopsy? Yes, I mean, to be honest, you know, there are cases where uh, a post-mortem examination, even recent to death, may not be able to identify a cause and of course in this situation we're left with just the skeletal remains so you've lost all the main organs you know you've lost the, the veins you've lost the arteries there is a lot of material missing that could have been damaged and identified a cause of injury for example he could have been subject to a stab wound um, where the knife hasn't caught or chipped part of the skeleton but we don't know because all the flesh, all the muscle, all the tissue has gone. Likewise, um, if he'd been subject to asphyxiation, well, there's nothing to examine. We haven't got the eyes, which would be the obvious starting point. Um, there is nothing that we can examine. You know, a skull would not identify, as far as I'm aware, asphyxiation or smothering, even drowning. You know, yeah. somebody drowned, we'd expect to find water in the lungs that we could compare with uh, nearby source such as the, the river 
trends. But of course, we haven't got any of that information available to us. So we are left with an unanswered question, really. I think the most obvious one would be something like asphyxiation or smothering, but, but we can't uh, discount something like a stab injury that would have led to a bleed. But of course, the other issue is, was that the site where the attack took place? There may be another scene. So if he, he was stabbed and he did bleed out, there could have been another location where the blood deposit would have been. That's a really interesting point, And maybe we'll deal with that when we talk about the where question. The other thing, obviously, you mentioned drowning. He was found very close to water, 20 yards away from water. So what we're really saying here is one of the more probable explanations for his death is some kind of asphyxia, smothering, asphyxia, drowning, something which blocks the flow of oxygen to the brain and therefore leads to death. You've obviously investigated a lot of these types of crimes. In your estimation, what are the more likely uh, ways in which someone is killed? Yeah, in, in terms of unlawful killings, a knife injury, a stab wound, um, it is the most prevalent. But then you get down to blunt trauma, injury and asphyxiation. Um, asphyxiation is probably more towards women than men, but it's, it's there. Obviously, the big question is who? I mean, is there anything that we can, from what we know so far of the investigation, is there anything that kind of gives us some pointers on that particular question? Well, we know that the investigation hasn't been able to identify who this individual is, despite some extensive work, particularly around dentistry, local inquiries, long-term missing people. So, you know, ordinarily, uh, in an inquiry of this nature, you, you would categorise groups of individuals that we would call persons of interest. For example, missing people, factory workers, um, perhaps people with certain types of convictions, and and you you populate each category, and then you'd slowly work through each individual within each category to eliminate, because the craft of investigation quite often is elimination and who's last standing. Um, I mean, what it tells us is it's not somebody that was known locally. Um, because none of the local community have come forward. Nobody's reported anybody missing. Um, you know, if my neighbor went missing, it wouldn't be just his family that might raise concerns. His neighbors would, his employers would, his GP would. You know, When, when somebody goes missing uh, and we try uh, and prove that they are dead, we, we do it like a, a proof of life inquiry uh, and plot what somebody would ordinarily do in their life uh, and you would find somebody that would say well yes I've seen them or, or no I haven't um, here we've got nobody coming forward other than those who have genuinely reported missing people and we know that the police have looked at those individuals and they have been eliminated through the DNA through the dentistry you would have thought it likely that somebody would have come forward at that time if somebody had gone missing within that sort of general Midlands area. Yeah, and, and the other thing I guess on that is the international dimension. If, let's say, this person wasn't from the UK at all, or everything we've seen there in terms of lack of traceability, lack of GP uh, coming forward and saying this person's missing, that would fit that explanation as well, wouldn't it? 
It, it would, um, you know, particularly when you look at the dentistry work they did, you would have thought if it was somebody that was regularly visiting the dentist in, in the UK, that we'd have identified him by now, which then suggests, is it somebody who lives outside of the United Kingdom? Certainly, I think in terms of the who, it almost has to be a process of elimination. What kind of people fit the fact that they're untraceable? And there's yeah. not many of that type. Uh, and so therefore, that's probably the way we ap approach that. Just want to talk about why. Now, it's really hard to know why, because this is the kind of, is this the mens rea you talk about when we uh, when yes. you talk about investigative? Maybe you can just say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so got three aspects to an investigation, actus reus, which is the state of affairs, what happened, where, when and how, the identity, and then you get the mens rea. So that is the intention of the perpetrator or their state of mind, or in simple question, the why scenario. Why did it happen? Why did he meet his death? And if it was unnatural, the reason for that. That's always difficult. Ordinarily, tend to start to answer that question when you've got witnesses and you've got a perpetrator or a victim that survived because they can talk to you and start to give you that information here we've got nobody to talk to us so we are left with the material which is the unreported missing person who gets found eight, 18 months later buried with a rope tying his wrists and legs together with pink socks on a, a wedding ring and that's pretty much it so we are left with hypotheses again as to so what might be an explanation i suppose the the most basic question is was it a random act of violence perpetrated by two people that came together very close to that point in time and then and then the act was was done or, or was the perpetrator known to the victim obviously we don't know the answer to that but statistically in your experience of dealing with lots and lots of cases like this, what's the proportions of each of those normally? I mean, which one is it normally? Is it normally random or is it normally perpetrated now? I would suggest that in at least 75% of unlawful killings or homicides, the victim is known to the perpetrator and vice versa. We have few stranger attacks. Uh, and in that in that twenty five percent, it is quite possible that the victim met the perpetrator in the days or on the day that they met their death. So, um, for it to be a random act of violence by a complete stranger is unlikely. And I, I, I'll tell you why I think that's because they've gone to extraordinary measures. If if this is a homicide, to cover their tracks, if it had been a random attack. Why not just leave your victim where you have attacked them and do a runner? Um, nobody knows who you are. The forensics weren't where they are now. We didn't have DNA. Uh, if there weren't any witnesses, it would have been very difficult for the police to put a case together against somebody if it was just a random stranger. Uh, this individual, if, if this is what the case is, identified a location where they have buried the evidence literally in a grave uh, and the reason they've done that is to distance themselves from the victim to distance themselves from the evidence because it's taken what nine to 18 months for the police 
to discover the victim and that was only by chance so the evidence trail is cold so it's been if it wasn't unlawful claim it's been a deliberate act i would suggest by somebody that clearly knew his victim and clearly knew the deposition site prior yes prior to the act yes uh, again what statistics will tell you is those individuals who have been killed uh, and have been disposed of in a burial scenario the perpetrator usually knows the burial sites um, the reason why they choose it is because they are comfortable in that environment they know when to go they know their escape routes they know the ideal time um, and here they would know that it is a remote location with limited access and because it's in a wooded area it's quite undulating and as we know where the body was it was on the bank of the riverside of the recreational ground so you wouldn't be seen from the recreational ground you probably wouldn't have been seen from the houses across the way where David Nathan lived because of the wooded area. They were in a safe environment where they had the time to dig a grave, dispose of the body, put the soil back in uh, and disappear without a trace. The last question is where? You raised a really good point earlier that, of course, we, we don't know whether this was purely a deposition site or this whether this is the uh, attack and deposition site if it's the former it implies there's another site of interest where the attack took place there's a couple of things that's always puzzled me about this uh, which I'm interested in your views on firstly the fact that the clothes they were found in uh, the fact that there were socks and there was a ring and there was nothing else no other forms of identification Thinking about that, and again, trying to get this idea of the most simplest explanation for it, I can't escape the thought that maybe the reason he was found with those items of clothing and no others is that that's how he was killed. That's what he was wearing when he was killed. And nobody wants to dress a dead body, and therefore he simply, having been killed in that state, was, uh, was buried in that state. The other point is the grave shape has always intrigued me. Obviously, I've never, I've never buried a body, but I have a kind of a, a layman's idea that you dig a channel, roll them in long ways, and fill it up. It just seems the easiest way of doing it to me. Whereas this wasn't like that. This was, now that might have been opportunistic because there was a hole, that's shape, but it does sound like they took a slightly different approach to the burial. Both of those points, um, any thoughts on that, Andy? The only people that are efficient and effective at digging a grave are grave diggers. Uh, we, you know, we all take a spade and dig a hole in the garden to bury a, a new plant. It's hard work to dig a grave, you know, six by three foot by six foot is a lot of effort. A lot of graves are shallow. Some consist of maybe a very slight dig with debris just laid on top. Here, we've got a very different position because he's gone in literally feet first. It's a very unusual yeah. burial. Um, just going back to the, was he 
killed in his socks and wedding ring and nothing else. I think there is some merit in that. And the reason why I say that is, why would you want to undress somebody that you've just killed? Because you are leaving material behind that could link you to the crime. It makes no sense. You're not going to keep clothing as a trophy. So you're just increasing the detection of your involvement in that crime. The other point is, he's been tied. Now, I would suggest he was probably tied for the convenience of movement. It would follow that he was killed in the state in which he's found, and then he's been tied. Um, whether we're dealing with a deposition site or an attack site and a deposition site, clearly we don't know. Um, but the fact that he's been tied uh, in the way he has um, would suggest that the individual responsible, if that is the case, tried to make him into a movable package. Uh, and obviously, being a tighter ball um, is probably easier to carry than you know a five foot eight human being. But what we what we know does make sense uh, if he's been tied to aid movement. Which implies a secondary site of attack, and then yes. then moving the deceased to the burial yes. site. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. So, if we can kind of pull this together, the five questions we kind of started out with here: the kind of when, the how, the who, the why, and the where. Now, we're not going to solve it on one podcast, but the when, in terms of probabilities. We're kind of fixing a kind of time around the May to August 1969. Seems to fit in with the pathology, but also seems to maybe fit in with this this idea of not noticing the burial. In terms of how, no obvious wounds, but the likelihood, and particularly given what you said about the statistics on uh, on modes of killing, asphyxia seems to be, or some form of asphyxia, seems to be high in the, the possibilities there. The who, we have, we've kind of worked on that from a, from a different angle, in the sense of saying, well, what explains the lack of traceability? Now, and what we're saying there is, maybe a transient population, maybe, maybe someone not from the UK, maybe somebody who isn't part of the kind of community where they are engaging with health workers, GPs, police, schools, in the way that most people do. On the why, essentially, all we can say is that there are primarily two, two explanations, random act of violence or perpetrator is known to the deceased. The likelihood is, because it's the likelihood in every murder, that the perpetrator was known to the deceased. And on the where side, I'm erring towards the two sites situation, the attack site, the movement of the body to the deposition site, which is previously known by the perpetrator, and then the deposition at that site. Generally, are you are you in agree agreement with those kind of general principles of the hypothesis? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think any of them you could rule out. Um, and I'm just sort of going back to the, the who question. And I guess, with hindsight, knowing what we think now, you'd have been asking the question of abroad, and particularly Europe, what missing reports were made in the summer of 69? Or people who just never came home, who were expecting to come home, 
maybe a couple of months later after a, after a yeah. short-term contract. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, uh, those records probably don't exist now, but and hindsight's wonderful, but it would have been really helpful to know whether somebody was reported missing, you know, on the continent within that time frame that would have been over in the UK. The other thing that just occurs to me about that is of course this wedding ring found on the right hand ring finger again suggestive of of cultures where that's the case if it's a wedding ring those cultures tend to be germanic cultures so hey maybe that ties into that as well yeah yeah i didn't know that but yes that would um, that would certainly fit with the scenario so again whether there is any work that could be done in terms of where could this individual have come from but we know that DNA can provide a possibility of ethnicity it's not an exact science the skeleton whether or not there's anything there particularly the skull there are individuals anthropologists they study for example schools they'll take measurements and they'll compare it with the statistics from different ethnicities uh, who may be able to provide an insight as to possible origin of the deceased. So we'll see, it would sort of fit. Well, that's a, it's an interesting theory. It's still a theory, a, a very embryonic theory at the moment. But yeah. uh, hey, it's something that we can, uh, we can start to consider. And then as we learn new things, we can, we can bend it and shape it and just see if it takes us closer and closer to the truth. Thanks, Andy. Brian Adams tracking there, the summer of 69. <laughs> Wonder what he was doing. That's a bit of a coincidence. So that's my initial working hypothesis, answering those five questions. When? May to August 1969, because of what we know and because of the rainfall data. How? Asphyxia, smothering. Some form of blocking of the airways. Why do we say that? Well, because there's no wounds on the body. That seems to be the most logical and plausible explanation. Who? I'm going with a foreign national living temporarily in the area. Why do I say that? Nobody can track him down. There's no links to any of the services that people would normally access. And also the ring on the right wedding ring finger. Why? Well, what I mean by why is, was it a random act of violence or was the perpetrator known to the victim. The perpetrator almost certainly was known to the victim. Where? Well I think the site of attack was not the deposition site but that the attack site was a very close by. Why do I say that? Because the site must have been known by the perpetrator. In the future when perhaps we know the full story it'll be interesting to see if any of these were even close and as we learn new things, these parts of the hypothesis will either be strengthened or diminished or eliminated altogether. But that is my start point and that is what will form the framework of how my investigation will be taken forward. Next time on the mysterious case of Fred the Head, I track down the man who claims to be talking to Fred from beyond the grave. It was pre-lockdown, so I invited him to the office for a conversation. He brought Fred as well.
The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.